Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Okay, hey guys, um, budget reconciliation and the filibuster are things we have been talking about on the weeds for years and years and years and years. Uh, they've been very relevant to political news this week. I think it's going to be incredibly important. Uh, Biden administration COVID relief bill is likely going to be a budget reconciliation measure. And a lot of other stuff that we are interested in here is ultimately going to hinge on whether the filibuster can be reformed. Uh, so I was really glad to sit down with Molly Reynolds, who's one of the top experts on Senate procedure, author of books on this, um, to really explain it. This is the thing, like, I'm a professional. I've been doing this for 17 years, and I feel like I am constantly getting this history and the detailed facts here wrong. It's like almost nobody except Molly in Washington understands. So I really think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, but before we get to the show, I just want you to know, as the Biden administration gears up, uh, Vox is going to help you understand this unprecedented burst of policymaking. Uh, so starting today, Herman Lopez, one of Vox's top reporters, is going to be in your inbox every Friday to explain the biggest policy debates of the week. If you want to sign up, you go to vox.com slash weeds hyphen newsletter. Uh, Herman is great. Newsletter is great. Check it out. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Molly Reynolds, is a senior fellow in governance studies at Brookings. Um, we, we've we talked Senate procedure so many times here on The Weeds, but never with a with a true expert. Um, this has become a, a sort of dominant factor in American politics, uh, but remains very poorly understood. So thank you so much. Uh, it's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start this with like, the big dumb question, as we say at Vox, like, what is a filibuster? Because we know that it's not like Mr. Smith goes to Washington and Jimmy Stewart talks for 72 hours and then and then we see what happens. Like, what what is the actual issue? Sure. So at the highest level to filibuster a measure in the Senate means to use any number of tactics to prevent that measure from coming to a vote. The ability of senators to do this um, comes from the fact that generally the Senate's rules don't put restrictions on how long the Senate can debate a particular measure. There are really important exceptions to that. I think we're going to talk about budget reconciliation. Uh, but in general, 
there's nothing in the Senate rules that allows for only a simple majority of senators to decide to stop debating something and take um, take a vote on it. So, yeah, one way to filibuster a measure is kind of the what we have in our our minds, the mythic Mr. Smith goes to Washington type, go to the floor, uh, an individual senator gets recognized to talk about a bill and just keeps talking until either the bill that he or she is objecting to gets pulled or he or she gets something else that they want in exchange. So we don't really see this very often anymore. We can get into kind of why that is. We see it occasionally. Um, so in um, in 2016, for example, um, Chris Murphy of Connecticut spent about 15 hours on the Senate floor holding up business uh, until Republican leaders agreed to hold several votes on gun issues. But again, most most contemporary filibusters like don't involve this kind of um, speechifying. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, they involve one or more senators simply threatening to drag out debate indefinitely because they oppose a bill or because they want to get something else in exchange, which then forces their colleagues to file what we call a cloture motion. And that's the tool that the Senate has to cut off debate and actually take a vote on something. But again, in most circumstances, that needs um, 60 votes to pass. And, and the mechanics of this is that there doesn't need to be actual debating occurring to say that the debate is not being right because like i I think this is this is where it just like confuses a normal person's intuition like you could be at a pta meeting and like there's a debate happening and then somebody wants to say hey guys like we should stop arguing about this and just take the vote and then there may be some robert's rules of orders kind of thing but you have to be conducting a debate for a debate to just continue in like people's normal gatherings. But the Senate just kind of comes in and out. Like, nobody has to be on the floor for the quote-unquote debate to be ongoing. Yeah, and that's that's just a really important, and that actually, when we start to think about particular proposals that people have made to change the way the filibuster works, like that's actually an important dynamic because it's it's an important adaptation that the Senate has made to deal with like what it means to be the U.S. Senate in the current moment. And I don't just mean in 2021. I mean, going back, importantly, to about the mid-70s, um, a little before that. But basically, as the Senate's workload gets bigger and bigger, thanks to like a more activist federal government that grows out of the Great Society um, and the, the New Deal before that, that there's just more for the Senate to do. And so they need kind of they needed kind of these adaptations to help them be able to use their time more effectively. But you're absolutely right that if an average person, not that most average people turn on C-SPAN too, um, but if they did, they would often see the Senate in what's called a, a quorum call, which is kind of a holding pattern until, and even when this, the Senate is more actively debating, you generally see one, maybe a couple of senators um, on, on the floor at a time. Right. It's not a, they, they give speeches, but it's not a, it's not like a discussion. Right. No, um, it is a different, certainly a difference between there are some probably some similarities between the U.S. Senate and PTA meetings, um, but that's not one of them. Right. Right. No, I mean, I just think it's like it, it, it's important to sort of clarify because it means that to say, OK, you need 60 votes to cut off debate doesn't mean, OK, you need 60 votes to do this sort of rude thing and force people who are actively engaged in a dialogue to shut up. It's come to mean, in effect, that you need 60 votes, like, 
all the time. Like people may have nothing left to say about such and such bill, but it's just like it can't pass unless 60 senators want it to to pass. And that has changed as a as a norm. I mean, I remember I um moved to DC in 2003 um out of college and one of the first things I covered was the uh Medicare reform bill that passed mm-hmm. back then and that's prescription drug benefits huh? yeah and there were democrats were mostly opposed to it uh but max baucus and um one other i think was for it uh, john bro and there was some thought that like democrats had the votes to filibuster it and they just didn't but i think that's the last time that happened yeah, I don't. Um, it's in these conversations, there's always sort of a temptation to say, like, this is the moment that things <laughs> changed. And there are a couple there are certainly a couple of um, really pivotal moments, particularly in the last um, decade or so in kind of the use of the, the filibuster. And we can talk about um, the sort of 2013, 2017 uses mm-hmm. of the, the nuclear option. But yeah, it, I mean, I think that, again, like to kind of zoom out a little bit, um, if we go back even far farther than 2003. And I think that like the mid 70s is, again, a really important moment to think about here. So we have a crazy time for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> so we have uh, we've got, as I was talking about, like a more activist federal government, which means a couple things. One, it means there are more targets. There are more things the Senate is talking about that someone might try to obstruct mm-hmm. as there are more targets as the agenda is bigger. There's also a bigger cost to the majority party of letting something just sort of sit on the agenda um, uh-huh. um, and consume floor time. Um, and then as we think about kind of changes outside of the Senate, um, there are more external groups that are putting pressure on senators to exploit all of their individual procedural rights. There are more and more incentives for senators to kind of make their own brands and to fundraise. And then we also at the same time have this like explosion or the sort of the the beginning of the explosion and the polarization of the parties, which then obviously shapes the incentives that um, members have to actually obstruct what each other are trying to do. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's a there's a sort of big shift in the um, party dynamics starting then, right, where they become both more sorted on ideology, but also sort of um, less institutionalized. Right. So like groups become more important Right. So because like the, the 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 classic way of thinking about this, right, is that like the party qua party like just wants its members to get reelected. But the issue groups want their allied members of Congress to actually do something. Right. And that that starts in a lot of important ways to include, again, using all of your individual procedural rights as a senator to stop things from happening that you or or in this case, your allied groups um, uh, don't agree with. And then to, to your point about um, the, the parties, you know, wanting their members to get reelected, we have this development that um, I think political scientist Francis Lee has demonstrated most effectively that, again, starting in about 1980, we have this change in the level of macro political competition that mm-hmm. both parties start to look at the next congressional election and say, hey, I'm in the minority now, but the circumstances are different. We're moving out of this period where everyone expected that the Democrats were going to be the permanent majority in Congress. So if we're the if we're the Republicans and we're in the minority, we have very little incentive to cooperate with the Democrats to give them wins. When Democrats are in the minority, they have the same incentives. And that that also drives this desire to obstruct things in the Senate. 
Yeah, Lee, Lee's stuff on this is is fascinating. It sounds weird, but like for decades, the Republicans basically wouldn't bother trying to win. Like it, it was just hopeless, right? So they were adapting to informal cross-party alliance with conservative Democrats as the way they would do things. And then there's a switch after Reagan's election to like, no, we could we could win. We could exactly, hold the exactly. majority. And that as and that's true. And then as the parties get farther apart from one another, it becomes even harder to build those supermajority coalitions when you need to do so, which just further incentivizes not cooperating. And it's it's kind of a, um, to use the, the Lee Drutman term, it's a doom loop. Uh, obviously, right. that's not Lee's term originally, <laughs> but uh, he's uh, he's applied it to our, our two party system. Um, and right. there, there are some there are some elements of that that we get in um, this sort of filibuster dynamic in the in the Senate. So is that when filibustering switches from being sort of something used sometimes to block mostly civil rights bills to something that's used all the time? Yeah. So this is actually an important distinction. I mean, here I'm going to go to some work that um, my Brookings colleague, Sarah Binder, has done. Um, actually, the um, her original book with uh, political scientist Steve Smith on this came out in the mid-90s. And one of the things that they talk about in the book is that we have this um, understanding of, uh, sort of a popular understanding of the filibuster as something that was only used for civil rights legislation in the kind of middle part of the of the 20th century. And that is, it is certainly true that it was used to great consequence to obstruct civil rights legislation kind of between the late 30s and the late 60s. But it's also true that before that, in the 19th century, we saw um, lots of um, lots of obstruction in, in the Senate. Obviously, the filibuster looked a little bit different in the 19th century because the cloture rule that allows for 60 votes um, to cut off debate doesn't come into um, to effect until 1917. But there, there's certainly a longer history of Senate obstruction on both issues related to civil rights and racial equality and on other like parochial and um, partisan issues. In the 19th century, technically, you couldn't force cloture at all. There was no, there was until 1917, but sort of between 1806 um, and 1917, there's no motion available in the Senate to um, to cut off debate. And so the Senate had various kinds of adaptations over that um, period of time to deal with that. There were times when Senate leaders tried to uh, reform the chamber to impose limits on debate. They got obstructed in doing so. Um, and then, but then we get to 1917 um, and there's this whole story of President Wilson and a proposal to arm merchant ships. This is this actually Im- important as we kind of think about where we might be going in that um, when we think about changes to the filibuster, recognizing the really close linkage between particular policy areas and particular policy proposals and procedural change. So when you when you listen to senators talk, you get a lot of kind of lofty rhetoric about the character of the chamber and the world's greatest deliberative body. And, you know, I think about the U.S. Senate for a living, and I know that a lot of that is just kind of like fig leaf cover. And it's really that what they care about is kind of what the rules do and do not allow them to do policy-wise. And so when we saw probably the greatest change in the in the use of um, the rules around the use of the filibusters, the creation of Rule 22 in 1917, it's because there is something that the that President Wilson was trying to get done, the Senate was obstructing him, and he 
sort of went public and convinced the Senate to change the rules to put in something to cut off debate to get this proposal enacted. And it's probably not a coincidence that it was a it was a war measure. No. Right. I mean, na- national security topics have a kind of special uh, status in in democratic politics, right? It's where you could say at a certain point, look, like we understand that there's a pacifist block in the Senate, but like the senators who are not pacifists need to ask themselves, like, are they going to let that minority like cause us to lose this war? It also says something important about kind of issue salience and Mm -hmm. the degree to which like you have to convince people that something is really important. And again, as we think about kind of where we might be going with the filibuster um, in, in the coming weeks, months, years. Um, and we we ask ourselves, like, what might actually drive um, a Democratic majority, like the, the one that uh, the Senate has now, um, to get rid of it? I, the, the question that I'm always asking is, like, what is the issue that they think is that important that they would choose to do that on? Right. I mean, so before we before we, we move on, I do just want to I want to shout out if we have any um, historians or, or whatever in the audience that I think like late 19th century American political history is this like black hole that's infamously boring and nobody can remember what order the presidents were in and Grover Cleveland comes up twice. And it's as we talk in the present day more and more about highly polarized congressional politics that actually understanding what was happening right like i i I was talking about um antitrust with um you know some some lawyers the other day but it's like how does the sherman act pass with these like incredibly lopsided majorities in this super polarized and it's like it's it's actually interesting you know and like we could we would benefit from knowing more on like a micro level about what what the members at that time were were doing and thinking but so, OK, so we flash forward to uh, in in when George W. Bush is president, there is a, a change uh, or sorry, there isn't a change to the rules. But Democrats have been filibustering Bush's circuit court nominees and Republicans are like really steamed about this. And it becomes this is when the term the nuclear option uh, first first comes to light. And so what what's that about? How does that fit into this? Yeah, so there's this um, there's this period in kind of the the Bush administration where um, Democrats are preventing the confirmation of some of Bush's um, judicial nominees, and kind of gets to a point where um, there is some pressure on Republicans to to quote unquote go nuclear to change the the cloture threshold for how many votes you need to to cut off debate, and eventually it gets kind of diffused by uh, some. Um, cooperation. Um, I, I believe it's a gang of 14. Um, even as someone who thinks about the Senate a lot, sometimes I confuse my Senate gangs. This was the original gang. I believe I believe it was the, the I, first I, time we I, used- I, I, I looked this up. I mean, it's not the first bipartisan group of senators, but it was it was the first time that that such a group was referred to as a gang. And now they're all gangs. Yeah. Um, although the the current um, the current set of sixteen senators um, is apparently still discussing what it wants to call itself, and gang of sixteen <laughs> does not appear to be on the table. And I don't know why we why we have to reinvent the wheel. Um, but um, but anyway, so they it eventually gets diffused. Um, but I think its relationship 
the relevance, I should say, of um, judicial nominations to this kind of overall trajectory on the filibuster is really important um, because there is, again, to kind of think about where we are now, there has been this conceptual distinction between like, oh, the filibuster for nominations and the filibuster for legislation, which is a little bit of just like a, a construct um, of kind of where the where the the politics are. But so you're right that in the in the mid 2000s, we um, we have this this pressure, it um, it eventually gets diffused. And then there, there's no they don't go nuclear um, in kind of the early 2000s. One of the things that's important to remember about the Senate is that um, senators have long memories and that there can be sort of some some bad um bad blood um, and some uh, some frustration that lingers um, into into the future. Right. And so the I, I mean, part of the importance of this is that at least Republicans perception was that Democrats, that even though it had been within the rules to filibuster judicial appointees, the Democrats were breaking some kind of understanding that they had. Right. Like R- Ronald Reagan presumably appointed judges and Democrats had a Senate majority. Um, and like Clarence Thomas was seated on the Supreme Court in a Democratic Senate majority. Yeah. And some of this, again, has to do with like how we understand, in this case, the role of the federal judiciary in the broader scope of the American political system. So like at this same time, we're having this increasing polarization. The parties are getting farther apart. And we're also having like a rising importance of the courts as the locus of policymaking. And so and those things aren't unrelated, like as it becomes harder to do things in Congress, like it, the courts become more important if you want to make policy change. And so there are lots of pieces of the puzzle. And and one of them um, is that it's kind of what's exactly happening in, in the Senate at this time. Um, right. But it's it certainly, um, like I said, I don't, I hesitate to sort of put lots of specific <laughs> pins, but um, it's certainly an important episode in the the development of the, the filibuster over right. time. I mean, I guess what it seems to me is that there's a, there's a feedback loop between actually filibustering things and pressure to change the rules to make it impossible, right? That like that's part of the whole story. It's not like every single piece of legislation that passed pre-1917 was unanimous, right? Now, some things were filibustered, but like controversial laws could pass despite the ability to filibuster. Yeah, it's also the case that like as you um the long sweep of history is a real kind of tit for tat situation here. So one side does something, the other side responds, but though that spills over into other parts of what the Senate does. And so like one of the, when we think about kind of the, the current Senate and the kind of dominance of the 60 vote thresholds, that one thing we see in like, as the Senate has become more and more used to needing to get to 60 to do most things, like that's had, that's spilled over into things like, now they routinely negotiate agreements where they're going to subject things to 60 vote thresholds. This is, again, kind of a technical point, but like to actually pass something in the Senate, um, unless it's something like a treaty, you still only need 51 votes. The vote on final passage itself is a, is a simple majority threshold. It's the the need to build the coalition to invoke cloture and cut off debate um, that that takes 60 in most circumstances. And so like 
to adopt an amendment to a bill, you, again, to like actually have the, the vote on passage, like that's a simple majority threshold. But the Senate's going around negotiating these agreements that say we're going to have this vote and we're going to subject it, it to a 60 vote threshold because we've gotten it's it's seeped so far into the way that we do business. Our whole negotiating um MO is going to be 60-60-60. One thing that, that I always remember is, I think it was 2005 also, or six, it was um, Justice Alito's confirmation vote. And then Senator Barack Obama votes no on his confirmation, but yes on the cloture. And people, grassroots people, are becoming more politically sophisticated over time. And so there's like a lot of people on the internet yelling at him. And he goes on like the Daily Coast blog and like writes a post about why he's why he's doing it. And it's the kind of thing where you you don't notice that the norm is going away until it's gone, right? But you can say that in retrospect, like members of the public had come to expect that legislators would filibuster things that they opposed and would treat it as a as a form of betrayal, right? That you couldn't right. you couldn't go back home and be like, no, I totally voted against that guy when actually you voted for the cloture motion. Yeah, you don't want to be like, I voted for it before I voted against it. <laughs> right. Um, but I mean, to the extent that, like, I don't want to kind of overstate the degree to which the average person pays much attention to um, who votes for or against closure and how they vote on, on final passage. But certainly the ability to um, say, cut ads that point out those kinds of um, those kinds of discrepancies. Um, again, like some of that, the rise of the internet and of internet media, like helps get that messaging out to our broader audience. But it, it again, it, it like if we look back into the 70s, kind of with like the rise of direct mail and all mm -hmm. that, um, those those kind of proto internet changes in American yeah, politics, yeah, yeah. it's happening there too. Right. There's just more. I, I mean, the more you get nationalization of politics, the more politics gets issue sort of centric and the more uh, entrepreneurial like the, the members themselves have to be. Right. Yeah, it kind of gets less cute. This all feeds off each other. But um, the notion that like you get um, folks who are seeing the Senate, this is um uh, and the House is an argument that um, Yuval Levin at AEI, I think, makes very persuasively about the degree to which we get more and more members who like see Congress as a platform from which to project an image as opposed to a place to do legislative work. Like that, that's another element here and that that, again, shapes your incentives to be obstructionist um, for things that you um, that you that you oppose um, in addition to. To even to the extent that people are still trying to do legislative work, as the filibuster becomes more normalized, using the filibuster to try to extract concessions um, mm -hmm. and not just to like actually stop something, a piece of legislation that you oppose from becoming law. Right. And so the point you're making there, right, this is like, um, I don't know, like I got my job as a pundit by like working as an obscure journalist for a while and, and get better known. But now it's like, a lot of the best known members of Congress, it's like they basically do my job, but it's like be, because they're in Congress, they're famous and like everybody pays attention to their tweets and like Josh Hawley publishes op-eds, but they're not primarily focused on 
legislating. And there's always been that sort of workhorse, showhorse dichotomy in, in Congress, but it's because media is different. It's just becoming, I think, more prominent, right? Congress is a is a, a soapbox that you can stand on rather than a, a workplace. Yeah, it's a it's a place to say things rather than do things. Um, and that and it's there's a little bit of a chicken and an egg scenario here in that you um, as both the House and the Senate have become more. Uh, more power has been centralized in the hands of party leaders. There are fewer opportunities for rank and file legislators to participate in the legislative process, which then changes the nature of the kind of person who wants to run for Congress. Um, and, and it, it all, it's all just again, a cycle. Um, but it, it, in the case of, of the filibuster, again, it really, sh- I think has affected the way that um, individual members who do want to um, use the the Senate um, as a as a platform for their broader political persona, like what that's meant for their use of the tactic, right? Yeah, because it's you know the sort of most earnest members of Congress I know are all incredibly bored all the time now because because like they don't do anything right because it's it's as you say it's a very leadership driven and increasingly so um so okay so we should we should take a break and then ask about budget reconciliation support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the harris school of public policy with the constant news cycle there's a lot of noise out there opinions are plastered all over social media Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. So there's this kind of big loophole. I, I don't know if it's a loophole in the cloture rule or, or what it is exactly, but Congress can pass a bill that's not subject to filibuster if it's a budget reconciliation bill. 
yeah, so what so, the hell? Yeah, so let me actually first <laughs> yeah. start by saying that um, reconciliation is probably the most famous, uh, to the extent that any Senate procedure is famous, uh, but it's probably the most famous of a class of procedures that um, allow the Senate to get around the filibuster in particular um, cases. So I'm going to, this is different than what the Senate has done on judicial nominations. Um, so just to kind of like make sure this yeah. is clear for everyone, what the Senate has done with nominations, both to executive branch appointments and to the judiciary, is it actually um, adopted a new precedent that says something about how many votes it takes to cut off debate on on a nomination. It did that in um, two stages, 2013-2017. What reconciliation is a case of is a set of congressional procedures that say that in the Senate, you can only um, debate a particular piece of legislation for some amount of time. And the effect of that limit on debate is to prevent the possibility of a filibuster. Because what happens is the the piece of legislation comes to the floor, There, this clock starts, when the clock runs out, then you have to vote. Um, in, the, in the case of reconciliation, there's this like extra piece called the Votorama, which um, senators love to whine about, but also use to their great political effect. Um, but again, like the point here is that the way that this works is that there's a there's a limit on debate. Reconciliation is a really important case of it, but there are other cases too. The Congressional Review Act, which we're not talking about right now as much as I thought maybe we would be, allows for the um, overturning of certain executive branch regulations subject. Uh, oh yeah, this was a really big deal in 2017. It was a huge deal in 2017, and I think it would have been a bigger deal um, right now actually if Democrats had not taken control of the Senate, because I think we would have seen um, a lot more um, forced votes on Congressional Review Act resolutions in the in the Senate. But there, there's that. Um, if there are listeners who have paid attention to the debate over arms sales by the Trump administration, particular, particularly the Saudi Arabia around um, the conduct of the Saudi-led war um, in Yemen over the past couple of years, the Senate's had some votes on this. Um, the effort's been led by um, Bernie Sanders and um, Chris Murphy and um, a couple of um, Republicans. That those that those are procedures that um, again have this way to get around the filibuster. So I just want to like sure. put reconciliation in context. Um, but reconciliation um, is a is a is again probably the most consequential, and it allows for certain types of budgetary legislation, so affecting. Uh, the revenue side of the budget, so the tax code, and some kinds of federal spending to move through the legislative process without the possibility of a filibuster in the Senate. The process is not unlimited. I suspect we're going to talk about the Bird Rule, but there are there are constraints on how this process can be used. But it is really attractive because it allows um, for legislating without the possibility of a filibuster in the Senate. And this is another another seventies. Thing. Yeah. And am I am I right to think that its origins were closer to sort of budget policy than filibuster po- that like there, there was actually some concern. I mean, I guess as you were saying before, right? It's like procedural changes get made for substantive reasons. And there was some kind of concern about the budget. Right. So the way that reconciliation comes to be part of the budget process. So 1974 Congress passes the Congressional Budget Act which does a whole 
whole host of things um, related to the budget process and really comes about because um, Congress was at a disadvantage in um, the, sh- the power struggle over the federal budget vis-a-vis the executive branch. It did not, prior to the Congressional Budget Act, we had no Congressional Budget Office. President Reagan had tried to um, impound, oh, excuse me, Reagan, President Nixon, sorry, had tried to impound um, various federal spending. Um, so Congress is trying to kind of push back against this expansion of executive power. So it passes the Budget Act. In the original Budget Act, there's a call for two congressional budget resolutions. And also prior to the Budget Act, Congress didn't have a legislative tool to like take a big picture look at the federal budget every year um, and set kind of a high level um, approach to um, to congressional budgeting. So the idea is that Congress was going to do a budget resolution first in the spring. And then over the course of the, the year, um, as the start of the new federal fiscal year um, approach, that maybe there would be changing circumstances that meant that it might need to revisit that that big blueprint. And so they were going to do a second budget resolution um, later in the year, and that there might need to be, after that second budget resolution, changes made to actual laws, so to either the tax code or to the the laws effectuating federal spending, um, and that because the new fiscal year was coming up soon, that they would need to do that quickly. Um, and so the the kind of justification for having the limitation on debate for this reconciliation bill to kind of reconcile federal law to this big budget pl- blueprint they had just set out, they would need to do that quickly. Um, so that's why they put the, the debate limit um, in place. And so that's kind of like, and so again, it's to say that like, to your point about policy mattering here, like they're trying to improve the way the budget process works and they see a place in the legislative process where they need to make a procedural tweak to make that happen. Um, and, so, and so, again, that's like how these two things are linked. And so it's called reconciliation, right, originally, because you, you see this in city government all the time, which is that the city council passes some kind of budget and it has different provisions. But then, like, stuff happens over the course of the year and you don't get exactly the sales tax revenue that you forecast. The police may have extra overtime needs because of protests, whatever. And sometimes midway through the year, the mayor comes and is like, oh, we got to change something, right? Because, like, the it, it, it didn't come out as forecast. So Congress could reconcile Right. The like actual public policy of the United States with the plan set out in the budget. Right. Yeah. That and, is, and that's it, where the term comes from. Right. Absolutely. So it's it's like very innocuous sounding. Uh, but then you eventually get to the point where because you can't filibuster the reconciliation measure, that becomes a useful vehicle. Right. Yeah. And it's 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 not until the early 80s that it sort of um, gets that that change happens. And so it's in, um, it's after um, Reagan, I'm right on my president now, gets elected um, in in 1980 and has these kind of big plans for slashing the federal budget, that this becomes an attractive tool for getting, um, getting around the possibility, not just of a filibuster in the Senate, but at that point when Democrats um, controlled the House. So 1981, Mm -hmm. Republicans in the White House have the Senate, Democrats control the House, um, and they're like looking for a way to try and expedite the process of enacting um, uh, budget cuts. And so some of it has to do with House politics at that point, mm-hmm. as well as Senate politics. But that's that's when we really start to get this 
the process being used in um, in the way that we think about it now. Right, because it starts with, well, we might need to make budgetary corrections and they might need to be fast. And then it goes backwards and it says, we have this expedited process so we can put our budgetary changes like on the on the fast moving train. Exactly, because, exactly. Because that's more convenient. And then it starts to become a question over time of like exactly how much like <laughs> how much can we hitch to this train, right? right? And that's where the bird rule comes in, which sort right. of says what you can and can't say is part of your budget reconciliation effort. Right. So um, by 19, um, 1981, first um, like consequential use of reconciliation looking um, like what we think of now. And then um, it's kind of by the mid 80s um, that some folks um, in Congress, notably Robert Byrd um, for um, the rule is named, um, kind of look around and say, oh, this is being um, being this process is being used to um, do things that are um, um, that are non um, non budgetary in nature. Again, like to go back to the earlier part of the conversation, there are other changes that are happening in the Senate at this time that mean that the prospect of a filibuster proof piece of legislation um, is becoming more attractive to senators. And so um, in 1985 is um, is when we get um, get the the bird rule initially adopted. Interestingly, um, the amendment that um, creates the the bird rule is um, adopted with kind of overwhelming support um, in in the Senate. But the idea here is that you're getting all this kind of additional material getting into these reconciliation bills that aren't aiding deficit reduction, which is um, what the underlying purpose of the the process is meant to be. Um, and also like you, you hear Bird talk a lot about, um, you know, the the deliberative character of the Senate. He <laughs> he talks about this a lot. Um so that that's kind of how we get the get the rule um put in place. Okay. So there's two parts of the bird rule that I feel really confident that I understand correctly. One is you can't change social security. Correct. The other is the long-term budget deficit has to go down, defined as outside the 10-year CBO scoring window. Yes, although the the window the window need not be ten years. Ah. The, the conventional um, the like conventional practice now is that it's ten years. The budget window has ever been shorter. There's actually, um, as far as I know, nothing that could stop them from making it longer. longer. Yeah. Um, there are there are bad budget reasons for doing that. In that, like the longer the window, the actually, the like less certainty we have mm -hmm. as we get farther and farther into the future. But yes, whatever the budget window is, that's the time frame. And so one thing you see as a result of the budget window is sometimes these kind of, um, uh, I guess we call them like, like bad faith explorations of tax measures, right? Where the, the Bush tax cuts pass in 2001, they are scheduled to expire at the end of the scoring window so that it qualifies under the bird rule, but then immediately Republicans turn around and say, well, we should make this permanent. Like they didn't, they, they, they were complying with the rule. They didn't actually believe that making the tax cuts expire was a good idea. Um, they just sort of craft the measure to, to comply. But what's the, what's the, the other thing 
Like, so it's rule. The rules have to be budgetary. And then we argue as to what that means. Like what, what's going on? Yeah. So, um, so there are, there are, there are six components to the bird rule. We've covered two of them. A couple of the other ones are, um, also reasonably easy to, um, to explain. One of them is that basically, so the, the way that a reconciliation bill is constructed, I mean, this actually, I think, is going to be really important in the emerging um, uh, democratic strategy around reconciliation, because um, the last several experiences we've had with the procedure have, they've been really big policy changes, but they've been relatively narrowly focused um, to a specific policy area. So tax cuts in 2017, the attempts to repeal the ACA in 2017, like, again, big bills, but like narrowly focused. Sure. What Democrats are talking about doing now is something that would actually potentially involve the jurisdictions of lots of different congressional committees. And one of the things that the Byrd rule says is that the way that the bill is constructed is that the budget resolution that starts the reconciliation process says to a bunch of different committees or only a few committees, hey, committee, Ways and Means Committee, Finance Committee, so on and so forth, go work on legislation in your jurisdiction and make a certain amount of budgetary change, um, comply with these instructions that we're giving you. Um, one of the things the Bird Rule says is that the Senate Agriculture Committee can't go making changes to things that are in the Senate Finance Committee's jurisdiction. So if something oh, in... Yeah. Like the, the bird rule says that um, a provision is extraneous, um, uh, a violation of the bird rule, if it's outside the jurisdiction of the committee that um, submitted that particular section of, of the bill. So that's one of the things. Another is that, um, and this gets into um, some of the things that are a little bit harder to define, but one is that um, each provision has to actually produce a change in outlays or revenues, mm -hmm. or, um, and this is, this is where it gets trickier, a change in the terms or conditions under which outlays are made or revenues are collected. So the, the, an important piece of, um, this part of the bird roll for kind of the conversation we're having right now is it's the part, um, of this that says that you actually have to produce a change in outlays or revenues that has generally restricted the reconciliation process from changing discretionary spending post um, bird rule. Because if you were to make a change um, to uh, discretionary spending, so spending that is handled through the annual appropriations process um, through reconciliation, it's thought that the parliamentarian in the Senate who makes kind of advises on um, the bird rule would say, hey, you're changing something in reconciliation, but we wouldn't actually realize that change in outlays. We wouldn't actually realize that change in what gets pushed out the door um, from the federal budget unless there was a subsequent change in legislation. Like the reconciliation bill isn't going to do that on its own. So that's a that's another part of the bird rule. And oh, then uh, I know I have one more. <laughs> okay. We could have taken the whole hour, how much time we have on the bird rule specifically. But um, the last. Um, the last thing that I'll say, probably the fuzziest one, is that the, the bird rule says that you can't have a change in outlays or revenues that is, quote, merely incidental to the non-budgetary components of the provision. Right. So what does that mean? Um, it's 
it's a little bit uh, a little bit of a, a black box. Um, <laughs> and it what it means in practice is that in a lot of cases, it absolutely matters how the provision itself is written. Right. But so okay, so try to think of some some easy cases here. You can't say, um, okay, I'm going to make abortion illegal. And that's fine because it has some impact on the timing of childbirths, which has some impact on people's tax situation, right? Like, definitely not that. Right. But then I was surprised. I was telling people that they weren't going to be able to open the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge to drilling in a reconciliation bill, but seemingly they were. So I don't know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, and I I don't know exactly how they um how they how they wrote the provision that allowed them to do that. Um but like I think a really useful example of this this like it matters how you how you approach the actual task of of writing the law um is the whole debate over um repealing the individual mandate in Obamacare. Oh yeah. So in um in 2015, uh Republicans do this reconciliation bill that they know is going to get vetoed by President Obama. And one of but one of the reasons they do it is to figure out what parts of repealing the ACA they could do through the reconciliation process, like what the parliamentarian was going to say, this is this is OK. And what um, she is going to say is not OK. And so they they go to the parliamentarian with a repeal of the individual mandate, just like stripping it out of the ACA. The parliamentarian says not permissible under the Byrd rule. But then they go, Republicans go back to the drawing board and they say, OK, what if we just set the penalty on the mandate at zero? What if we just said there is no penalty? Um, and so the parliamentarian says that's acceptable. Um, and so then when we get to eventually to the 2017 tax bill, like that's how they ultimately got the um, uh, got the mandate. Right. So you could conceivably. So this is one I, I was toying with. Right. So you maybe can't change the minimum wage in a reconciliation bill, but you could like impose a punitive tax on low wage employers and create the, the the desired effect of making them raise what they pay people, right? Because it's like a it's like a metaphysical distinction to the parliamentarian, not a, not a consequence based one. As far as I as far as I know, um, this actually I think is what Democrats are talking about. There's some reporting in the Wall Street Journal that uh, that floats this idea that basically um, could. Could Democrats um, craft a minimum wage increase structured as a tax against companies that don't pay the higher minimum wage? Um, there are other folks, um, including um, Bill Douster, who's one of kind of Senate Democrats um, leading uh, or sort of the Democratic Party's um, leading budget minds on this stuff and who has literally like written the, the congressional documents on this, who thinks that you could make the argument that there's um, enough of a, um, a budgetary um, effect of the minimum wage anyway to increase that through um, through reconciliation. But it really is. And this is this is part of why, like, it's this is hard to do um, because it really matters, like how exactly this stuff is written. It's like a... Um... I don't know how to put it. It's it's like a lawyer forward process, right? Like the way I generally talk about it is that it's a really it's a really kludgy way to make policy. And so you um kind of to take a little bit of a step back, if you're thinking about like the strategic 
um, reasons to use reconciliation, even in a big way, versus eliminating the filibuster um, for legislation. You have to ask yourself, like, from a from the perspective of the policy itself, like you might be able to accomplish the same goals, but it's going to be a lot messier to get there um, if you go through reconciliation um, in a lot of cases. And if you go through reconciliation um, and you have and you've done it with a with a simple majority, I think um, it can be harder to revisit things later because you didn't have a broader coalition. Um, and I think that some of what we saw with the Affordable Care Act um, and like things that happened, like things that turned out to be drafting errors or just um unanticipated consequences. It was one of the reasons it was harder to revisit that later is because um, it had this very partisan tinge. Right. But though, I guess, right, to to earlier point, right, it's like if you want to change the filibuster, which some people do, you need like a a specific reason, not a, yep. not a generalized critique. The flip side of this minimum wage point is that like, well, it would be a more elegant politically sustainable way to do it like that's not going to count as a good enough no, reason right sure so it's like the the fact that you arguably can squeeze this through into reconciliation even though it doesn't seem like a great idea like i don't know it's like to me with like normal person brain this seems like well if you want to raise the minimum wage like you should change the filibuster rule but like the senate way of thinking about it is well if we don't actually have to change the filibuster rule to deliver on this policy commitment uh then we're not going to do it right that the that the filibuster debate in practice seems to be about i don't know what dc statehood maybe but like it it doesn't it doesn't seem like there's something that um the pivotal members are enthusiastic about that they can't do in reconciliation. That's, I mean, that's the, that's the question. Um, And the, the like metaphor that I generally use when I think about this is to say that if the legislative filibuster goes away, it's going to go away because something is going to break the dam. Um, And I don't know what that is. Um, (laughs) And then there's this question of once you break the dam, there's all this other stuff upstream that's going to move through more quickly, but is not itself the thing that would break the dam on the filibuster. Um, And so maybe it's um, maybe it's D.C. statehood. Maybe it's um, something related to to the federal courts. I maybe maybe it is if they can't jam um, something like the minimum wage or other kinds of important um, uh, uh, legislation responding to COVID through the reconciliation process. Like maybe they and 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 also that Republicans are um, unwilling to vote for any of that. Maybe maybe that's where we end up. But like until we have a better sense of what that is, um, what does Joe Manchin say that is? What does Kirsten Cinema say that is? What does Mark Kelly say that is? Um, all that sort of thing. Like that. It it's it is hard to know like where exactly we're going. And that was kind of the point of um, former President Obama at John Lewis's funeral, talking about a new voting rights. Right, so he's trying there to because he had made generically critical comments about the filibuster uh, before going back years, right? But he's trying to line up a specific set of dominoes where it's like Democrats are all saying that John Lewis is a hero and an icon. They're all saying that they support a new Voting Rights Act, which was 
hampered by the Supreme Court, can't be reauthorized. Uh, re- Republicans, you know, are not interested in in a change or, or reauthorization. It's very clearly not birdable. And he's trying to say, like, this is a topic of transcendent moral significance that, like, should inspire you to change the rules. And what's interesting is that, like, issue activist groups are a little more scattered than that in terms of what it is they're they're talking about. But, like, Obama knows a lot about politics. And he's, like, he's, he's, he's trying to get, you know, like, use the magnifying glass to burn the ant and, like... Get get people to focus their energy behind this one thing that he thinks like carries enough clout on the hill to possibly make it change. Yeah, and I think that that um, that putting aside everything I've said about like not put, pointing at specific moments, like that was a really consequential moment for me last summer watching that happen. Because if um, I think if we see Democrats um, start to be active um, uh, or continue to be active in Congress um, on trying to push new voting rights legislation. Like that amount of elite leadership, I think, is going to um, uh, is going to matter uh, uh, or has the potential to matter a lot. But it again comes back to this question of like, is that um, is that where where they're going to go? And the, like of the menu of things that they are. Um, that Democrats in Congress care about right now, how are they ranking them in relative priority? Um, and it seems like from reporting that like the first place they are going is to try and use the reconciliation process for COVID. part or all of Biden's COVID relief plan. And then the question is how much of it can they do through that process? Wait, and I think what's tricky is that Obama there, right, he's linking a procedural reform to essentially another process question, which is the kind of thing that, um, I don't know, like journalists are really interested in, but I think lacks the kind of urgency of like Woodrow Wilson's wartime measure, right? Or... The the thing about Republicans and the circuit court judges is that um, Republican-aligned interest groups are very focused on judicial issues. Like yeah. they put they put a ton of stock in that, um, whereas the voting rights stuff has um has a kind of second order impact on things that progressives care about, but not necessarily. I think that's yeah true in some cases and less true in others. I mean, I think there are huge parts of, if you think about kind of the democratic coalition as a collection of groups, there are certain groups within that orbit for whom voting rights is incredibly important. And you've seen, um, you've seen more and more um, rhetoric around that, I think, from, um, from elite Democrats, um, particularly like in the kind of, if we think about the time between when Obama said that at John Lewis's funeral and the, the election and then the time since the election, there's been more attention, um, not to say there was no attention before that, obviously, HR1 in the last Congress, House uh-huh. Democrats, like number one legislative um, uh, priority was a, a democracy um, reform bill that included voting rights. So I think um, I think at this moment, it's possible that that um, Democrats will see um, voting rights legislation as more of a um, first order policy mm-hmm. item than um, 
it it has been. And I think we've certainly seen efforts within the kind of democratic universe to focus attention on it mm-hmm. in that way. But I mean, I think, but your your broader point about um, that if we're going to see changes to the filibuster needing to link them to policy is um, is really important. And it's part of why um, what happened over the past couple of weeks with Mitch McConnell and the organizing resolution was um, was interesting to watch because that's like a case where was he trying to get them to trying to get the Democrats to use the nuclear option to organize the Senate? Like that's the most process of process oriented um, right, yes. things. Well, that was a weird one because I mean, I guess he backed down eventually, but it it, it, it struck me as weird because it was like he was almost making Democrats use the nuclear option, right? Over something where like clearly their preference was not to do that. Right. But like, they're not going to not organize the Senate. Like, right. That didn't, you know, even though it's not a real policy issue, like, I mean, I don't know. It was, um, it was, it was in a little puzzling. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I mean, I think probably his ultimate goal was one to see if at the start he could like drive a wedge within yeah. the Democratic um, caucus. And then um, when that didn't work, like get, Mansion and cinema to say publicly that they are not going to vote to eliminate the filibuster, right. which is really easy to say because they're going to be against eliminating the filibuster until if and when they are for eliminating the filibuster. <laughs> sure, like right, that's the way yeah. this works. I mean, it's an inherently non-credible, yeah, you know, promise. So, okay, wait, but before I let you go, I, I do want to loop back to reconciliation uh, because I was talking before the election um, to some of the people on Biden's transition team. They were, you know, already working on. Um, their strategy for fiscal relief, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I said at one point, like, well, do you think you could put all that in one bill? And they were like, no, no, no. The budget experts say we can do two reconciliation bills. And then I think I saw you say on Twitter you could do four. Like, is there, some, <laughs> is there an actual rule about this? Like, um, So the answer is yes and no. Um, okay. So, again, without going like super – this is the weeds, but without yeah. going so weedsy to – be too weedsy for the weeds. Um, the way that the reconciliation process works is that um, there's a there's a budget resolution. Talked to you a little bit about that before. That can initiate the reconciliation process under um, uh, guidance from the parliamentarian um, that dates to the mid two thousands. Each budget resolution can set up. Um, uh, a reconciliation bill to do um, to make changes to spending, one that can make changes to revenue, and then one that make, can make changes to the debt limit. And so we have available to us um, at this moment a budget resolution for um, the fiscal year that is already in progress, fiscal year 2021, that um, Congress did not act on last year. So it's an unfinished budget resolution. So what they, what Senate, uh, what House and Senate Democrats can, I think, are going to do in the very near future is take up that budget resolution, put some reconciliation instructions in it, and get a reconciliation process started. This is analogous to what Republicans did in the beginning of 2017, where they took the unacted on 2017 budget resolution, did that right out of the gate, tried to repeal the ACA by using it, ultimately failed. And then um, we get, after that process kind of played itself out, um, they had a second um, available budget resolution for the next fiscal year. So then it was FY18. Now it would be FY2022. That they but could- so the, the, the second bite 
it didn't require the first one to have failed. Like it, it happened no. to be the case that only one passed. Exactly. But that's that's not like relevant no, to the rule. No. Okay. If so, if John McCain had showed up in the middle of the night in the Senate and said thumbs up instead of thumbs down, um, that would not have um, affected their ability to use the um, a brand new one. A brand new one. Okay, so so the the one the one caveat to this where we sort of really get into like who knows what could happen is um, the possibility of um, revising a budget resolution um, and whether that could set up additional opportunities to use the reconciliation process. That's like a huge open question, but I think at the end of the day, like there the thing to remember is that Democrats have multiple bites at the apple, if you will, um, and a big constraint is going to be like how long it actually takes them to eat the apple if you will Uh um that like this is not uh even under the best of circumstances this is often not a quick process um and the rules aren't magic so at the end of the day like the reconciliation rules can't force agreement where agreement doesn't exist and so Whatever it is that Democrats decide to use the process for, they're still going to need to get all 50 of their members in the Senate and 218 of their House members to agree on the underlying policy. That can be harder to do in the presence of the Byrd rule. You have less kind of levers to pull to try to get people on board. You're more constrained in how you can make um, make legislative trades. And so... There's a pot at the end of the reconciliation rainbow, but like you got to get everyone to agree on how to get there before um, before the rules are useful to you for that purpose. And to be clear, one last thing, and you cannot do discretionary spending in this vehicle. So it's it's um, again, post bird rule, the understanding has been that it would be difficult to get discretionary spending through the reconciliation process in the presence of the Byrd rule. There are ways, um, and I think that this is going to become a really live issue, there are ways to structure spending that might otherwise be discretionary as mandatory spending. Uh Um, And I think, again, I think there's a lot of conversation about what this might look like. And then the last thing that I'll say um, is that the rules aren't self-enforcing. We we talk about the parliamentarian reviewing the text and advising what is and is not a violation of the, the bird rule. But unless someone stands up on the Senate floor and says that provision is in there and I think that it's a violation of the bird rule, there's no mechanism for enforcing the constraints that the rule places. And so there's always the option of just sort of tempting fate and saying, like, could we get something that might Uh be a violation of the bird rule through and just hope no one says anything? That's probably not going to work. But again, like the the rules, um, when we when we think about the way that like congressional rules are different than other rules, this is an important um, an important one of those ways. And in a pinch, the majority can overrule the parliamentarian. Yep. Um, uh, and you've seen, um, folks kind of make this argument, um, that, that, that is also a, a strategy available, um, to the Democrats. I mean, the bird rule specifically provides for the option of waiving the bird rule with 60 votes. So if you had something that you wanted to put in a reconciliation bill, but had support, like that's a, that's an avenue available to you. And then there's also, there are also procedural ways, um, to, to disregard the parliamentarians, um, advice and, uh, 
the question is whether um, whether Democrats would would want to do that. You know, you've seen um, you've seen some folks felt that. You saw um, when Republicans had the majority. You saw Ted Cruz probably most notably float this in um, uh, respect to um, to the ACA repeal. Um, so that that's a that's another um, possible avenue available. Whew, what a world. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm going to let you go. Uh, you know, everybody at home, you got to try to see if we can find a way to like shrink this down to index card size so you can you can keep it at the ready as we go through this. Back to the, uh, the original uh, Vox card stacks. Yeah, exactly. The dream. The dream. Um, okay. Uh, Molly Reynolds of Brookings Institution, thank you so much. Um, thanks as always to our sponsors, to our producer, Eric Janakis, uh, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. <laughs>